This week, I talked to the wartime CMO, Patrick Stahl. He's currently CMO at Zeps and has worked at N26, Uber, and TomTom. Patrick always seems to come into companies at times of big disruption, be that the pandemic or the Delete Uber campaign. And through his experiences, he's developed some tools and principles to get his team through and make the company stronger on the other side. He's going to share that with us today. How we can develop a bias for action, cut back as much as we need to and measure that along the way and do it all with a good dose of empathy. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. I'm your host, Rob D. Willis, and I work with tech companies all over the world to teach them communication skills and public speaking. Join me as I talk to tech leaders who have seen it all. You'll hear their stories and learn from their experience. So buckle up and let's uncover those gems they won't teach you in an MBA. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Could you just introduce yourself, your background, and a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? I'm Patrick Stahl. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Zups right now, which is a company that runs two brands, one called Wildermate and one called Sunway. And we serve international migrants to send money home to family across the world. Last year, we sent home, we helped people send home more than $15 billion across the world. And we really send it to every corner of the world. It's, it's, a, it's a great business to be in. I mean, we're really mission critical for people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. You can imagine people are sending money home for tuition, for rent, for energy, hospital bills, you name it. So it's a, yeah. it's a very important role, an important business to run. And uh, again, I'm the chief marketing officer here. So I run our marketing teams, efforts, budgets, and I'd say pre, as they say, E-series e, e pre-IPO business at this point in time. Oh, awesome. And yeah, I quite agree that it's an important business to be in because I guess up until a few years ago, it was just like Western Union and everyone just had to use that and they could charge what they wanted. That's right. And they were charging a lot. So World Remit really was the, the OG disruptor in this space. The company was founded about 10 years ago by Ishmael Ahmed, who himself was, uh, was a migrant from Somaliland and was actually sending money held through Western Union and the likes, taking cash to a cornerstone, uh, corner store. And everybody around you knew you were taking cash to the corner store. So there's a safety element in that. And, you know, these, some of these companies are charging upwards of 10, 20%, which is quite ridiculous. So imagine earning money through a hard, hard earned job, blue collar, you're picking strawberries or whatever it is that you're doing to earn that money and send back home. And then somebody takes, takes a fifth of it to charge mm-hmm. you for sending that money home. So it disappears. And then FX spread. And it's so important, actually, Rob, that the United Nations has spelled out in one of their UN development goals, sustainable development goals, that we need to lower the cost of remittance globally to... <laughs> be one of the key factors in the eradication of poverty around the world. There's been significant research done that actually says that increased remittance to a country also increased the likelihood of democratization in those places. So it is really an important thing for the world. Yeah. It, it, and it's, I mean, as you say, it's a huge disruption in a really good direction. And you've had so much experience in all these different industries, which have been these companies which have been disruptive. And I'm wondering, like, looking back over your career, probably many instances, but could you tell us about a time when you were really tested as a leader? Yeah. And, and maybe just to give you a, a sprinkling of background. So I spent about a decade in consulting when I thought that, that's, that's been good and interesting, but I kind of want to do what, what my customers do and what the clients do. So I started my career as a marketer at, at a company we all know and love called TomTom. And uh, many people will remember for kind of our, our parent navigation device. 
started there as a product marketer and eventually ended up running the consumer marketing division. And that was in a time when the traditional navigation device category was in what we called negative growth territory. So we needed to discover ways to generate new growth in the business. I left TomTom to join Uber in the summer of the delete Uber moment. So again, a company in a branding crisis, and I joined them to run marketing for Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Uber, and eventually Uber Eats, Uber for business, our trucking business, and a new mobility business. When I left Uber, I joined a neobank out of Germany called N26, which exists across the entire European Union, as well as the United States, and now in Brazil. I joined them on the first day of the German lockdown, right in the middle of the COVID crisis. So I entered that business in a moment of crisis, in a moment where a hyper-growth company was suddenly hitting the brakes. And when I joined Wolvermit, I joined right at the start of the cost of living crisis and inflation. And we've obviously recently lived through the, the, the banking crisis and the SVB and the financial crisis and the lack of funding in the category. So I think there's a, there's not one specific moment, Rob, but I, mm. I, I feel like I'm really tested as a leader when I joined a lot of these roles. And yeah, you're already tested when you join a new position, a new business, because you're learning. It's a new category, a new team, a new business. If on top of that, you are parachuting into a situation of extreme crisis, um, mm -hmm. whether self-inflicted or whether in the category or whether due to a macro environment, it really demands a lot from you. And it is really one of those wartime situations. You cannot sit around. You can't sit there and ideate with a marketing team. You need to become very decisive, very informed and start to move very quickly to help that business survive. And eventually to create the foundations for future growth for any one of those businesses. Maybe a really good example to, to focus on, because it's one everyone went through, is, is COVID. And I understand, did you join N26? You started, first day of lockdown was your first day. Correct. Yeah. And so does that mean like you thought you were going to work the next day, but then you didn't? You just joined a Zoom call? <laughs> I mean... Practically, I signed a contract and I thought a month later, I was going to head to Berlin and, and, and move my family there. And within a couple of weeks, we said, actually, we can't travel. And by the way, how do I get a laptop? And it, it was really one of those situations where everybody, and we've all lived through this. Mm -hmm. it was, I, I was shipped the first laptop as a remote joiner. It hadn't happened before. And so yeah. I was really part of that cohort. And, and you know, there's a cohort of Millions of professionals that have gone through the similar experience. So, but yeah, that, that is personally really the way it panned out at the time. So on top of the, I need to meet a team. I need to understand what we're good at. I need to understand the business challenge. I need to understand how we make money and how as marketing we contribute to that growth and, and how we can improve that. You're doing all of that for the first time in your life without being physically close to people, without being able to meet them in the first instance. Yeah. And also you, the way you're perceived as well is different because generally you would go to a building and meet some people. And right. now they're having to see the new dude, Patrick, he's meant to be turning up, but no, he's joining online. I did. And your, your family was going to be moving as well with you. So that's like maybe, do you, do you have children? Are there like schools right. you have to think about and stuff? Well, yeah, we had to think about that. And then, and then we didn't have to think about it or we couldn't think about it because schools weren't accepting any visitors to, to, yeah. to look at schools because of the, the, the potential health implications. It was really quite a unique situation. And to your point earlier, absolutely right. My team was also for the first time experiencing anybody on prolonged Zoom calls mm -hmm. rather than having that personal. 
now we've gotten accustomed to this. Now we can work remotely. We've all built the skill set of understanding people, reading personalities, reading between the lines. But at first instance, that was hard. So it's, built, it's hard to build rapport in a situation that is so completely new. And the best way to describe it is probably that you're jettisoning into something and, and you only speak a proportion of the language. It's almost like half of what you're communicating physically wasn't being, wasn't being perceived at the time. There's a writer called Erica Dawan who wrote a book called, I think, Digital Body Language, it's called. And she said, we are now cueless. We don't have the nonverbal cues uh, right. that we used to have. And if it's a unique situation. I mean, let's hope it's unique. It's not going to happen again. But often, as you say, you've been parachuted into these situations where there's a crisis and that's going to make it harder to build rapport with your team. So where do you start with that as a leader? When you want to, you've not even like learned the business yet. You just need to get them to trust you. How yeah. do you go about that? And I don't think a crisis makes it difficult to build rapport with your team. I do think when you come in, building that rapport, making the time and attention as quickly as possible is probably one of the one of the most important things you can do as a leader. So when you enter a new role, when you are put into a leadership position, in this case, that was hard. But spending time with people extensively, investing in meeting absolutely everybody on your team. And I'll give you an example. When I joined WorldRemit two years later, I literally spent the first two weeks meeting everybody, all 100 people or so on my team personally, whether they were in person or whether they were remote. But I think besides the all hands, besides the team communication, besides your direct reports, people need to understand who you are. I think it was the next step. You need to understand where the team has problems, friction, strengths, weaknesses. And so to understand that, you need to speak to people outside of the team, the internal and the external customers within the business, but real customers in the world, see what's working and build a thorough understanding yourself as a marketer of how the business actually earns money. What is the way that we actually monetize? How can we grow that as marketers? And that's not because we are vicious money hoarders. But that's because if we really want to make a difference in the world, if we want to continue to improve a category and provide a better service, we need to be financially viable and ideally financially independent. I've come into hyper growth environments. I've seen series D's, series E's. I've seen IPOs in person and managed teams through them. Um, but getting to a place of financial independence where you're not perpetually hunting the next funding round is a place where you can really start to build for the longer term. And so it's really a place you want to get to with those teams, having a fundamental understanding of how to grow money flows, how to build profit growth for the business over time as a marketer is, is I think, one of the crucial investments you need to make right at the top. Yeah. And it can, as it is a huge time investment, as you say, meeting 100 people takes a while. And then the external stakeholders, be they customers or be they within the company as well. And I'm wondering, what kind of signals are you looking for in those conversations? Are you just having a chat or are there particular things that you'll gravitate towards? Yeah, they're not interviews. So I don't sit there and go, I'm Bob. What do you do here? <laughs> For those of us that, that have watched the movie and, and recognize the reference, you'll smile. But they, I, I think one of the most important things I look for is engagement. And, and I think it's, it's pretty easy to tell if somebody is engaged and really believes in what the business is there to do. This is not about me testing them on the mission, the purpose, do they really know everything inside out, but the actual job that they do, do they know how they contribute to the overall business? And are they truly passionately engaged with what they do? 
I think the other thing I look for, and this is really for me personally, is I, I, I love working with experts. And so testing a little bit for expertise, if I walk away from a conversation, even a first get to know you going, I just learned something, then we're in a really great territory. I know I'm going to probably work very well with the individual. And I know that they're probably enabled to be an expert in that, in that business right at that point. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really powerful. And once you've got that, I mean, let's go back to COVID and you've got this unique situation. You've now got to build this rapport with everyone, trying to understand, are they engaged? And of course, engagement's really hard at that, that moment. Uh, but how did you find things there when you were having these conversations? Confused? Worried? I'm guessing. Well, I think there's a, there's, there's a slight step back to that, which is another consistent through the team that I've come into is a lot of these rapidly growing startup scale up hyper growth businesses go through different growth curves. And one of the key lessons that I've seen businesses actually do a very bad job at is that some of the people that are amazing at one growth curve are no longer as well suited for the next growth curve, let alone the one after that. So concrete example, they, if you were in an early stage startup environment, you might have 10 people, 50 people, 100 people. The generalist is king. You need people that can jump from one discipline to the next, that can move quickly, that have an incredible bias to action, that are data-driven. All those factors in and of themselves are hugely important once you're at scale and you have 10,000 people and you're running $15 billion in GMB across a platform. However, as the team grows, you need to bring in expertise. You need to grow that team. You need to bring in best practices. The learning curve of your internal teams can only go so far before you need to inject it with what's really best practice in a certain space and ideally go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Some people that are great at that early stage migrate with a team, learn, adapt, and actually have amazing career paths, but not everybody. Identifying which who of those folks are coming along in the journey and actually having awesome conversations with people that are great at that early stage and finding another early stage place for them to land and add immense value in that early stage is something that I think growth businesses need to be much better at. Is also, I think, something where their investors can help. As an investor into early stage businesses, you can start to move some of the early stage operator back into those phases, have them, you know, amazing career paths, but have them deliver in a phase that they're great at. What I want to get to is that I've come into teams repeatedly that still have some early stage operators in them that are not engaged in the state of the team that the team is at. I've come into these teams where business around them has deemed the team not effective and said, oh, that marketing team that you're coming to lead, not that great. You probably need to drive huge change and probably change half the team. That is rarely true. What is much more true is that that team made proper leadership and direction, but also decisiveness. I've found time and time again that teams that have been okay have been left to fester without being absolutely amazing and, and really, really great and being enabled to be great. Some of these crises need you to make decisions quickly. So I needed to meet 100 people at, at Zeps, come in, make decisions. But at the same time, also there, we needed to reduce our spending very, very quickly because of cost of living crisis. We didn't know what the future would bring. Very similar dynamic at Uber at the time, very similar dynamic at N26 when I joined. You can't wait for those decisions. You come in with a brief field, cliche of you know, fixing the engine while you're flying the airplane has never been more true than when you come into those situations, kind of like a wartime CMO. And I think the way that you take those decisions are some of the first proof points of yourself as a leader. The meeting the team, understanding who is 
well-placed, who's engaged, who wants to be there for the future. At the same time, thoroughly understanding the business model and the data to make a decision within weeks, potentially cutting 50% of spend in some of these situations or more because we didn't know what was going to happen. The way you do that, the way you analyze the situation, the way you communicate the change decisively. And then important to me is the way you measure that change. Because if you're cutting 50 to 80% of spend in some of these crisis situations, that is actually a huge opportunity in disguise. Some of these teams have become addicted to, we are spending at these levels, but we can't stop because God knows what would happen to the business, right? Mm -hmm. And we're still targeting the next round and we need the growth to continue. Cutting some of the spend because of external factors allows you to actually measure incrementality when you gear back up. It allows you to measure the half-life of your marketing investments. So when you turn mm -hmm. off brand spend in channel A, it'll take some time for that to dissipate. Well, that data and that knowledge will factor into all of your future investment models if you're measuring it correctly. Now, I hope in hindsight, the teams that I've worked with have recognized that, yes, we had to make decisions quickly. Of course, we've made some mistakes, but hopefully we've been able to communicate them clearly. People understand why we've been able to make changes in teams with a huge amount of empathy. But thirdly, and very importantly, every change that we've made, we've set up measurement systems that allow us to learn from them. And in every one of these situations, within weeks, if not months, we had to turn around and actually gear back up because the situation turned out to be manageable. Once we understood what lockdown and COVID meant, we realized customers were still opening bank accounts. And actually, they were now afraid of touching cash and they all wanted to go digital. We had to re-pivot the business in the opposite direction and start to increase our growth again and capitalize on that versus competition. So a state of crisis is not permanent. And so managing it in a way that you learn from it as quickly as possible is also very important. Yeah. And is there maybe a situation, because of this is hugely unpredictable territory, none of us have a crystal ball, but is there a time maybe in hindsight where you feel, I could have maybe handled that differently? Maybe from a business point of view, maybe as a leader of a team, or just personally as well? like how you dealt with yourself throughout those moments. Yeah, I think if I, if I could have snuck to, to Berlin in my first week at N26 and somehow got into a park and, and, and seen people in person, I think that would have gone a long way. I would have, I'd have done that differently. I think there's probably no way to do that. The authorities were all over it. I, yeah, I panic at the time, but, but it took a long time to recover, right? And it took me three months or so before I could meet my team in person there. And that was yeah. hard through that period and throughout. I think other concrete situations, the ones I would do differently are the ones where I've taken, in hindsight, too much time to make decisions. And mm -hmm. I think maybe that comes with experience. I think there are situations where you continue to analyze and you continue to think around, okay, how do we build a business case for, for this decision? We are in a moment of crisis. But I think the more experience you have, the more you should also be able to trust your quick analysis of a situation and your instincts. And so the last years, as I kind of rounding up the second decade of my experience, I find that that's okay. I think you, it's not about making bets, but it's about analyzing key data points and quickly coming to a conclusion, deciding it bias to action. And then to my earlier point, measuring it much quicker. I've gotten much better at that as a leader with my teams, as I mature in those leadership roles. I think in the early days, you want to be as prudent as possible. You're, it's not analysis paralysis, but you're probably spending a, a few weeks too long analyzing and debating a problem rather than saying, this is what we're going to do. 
at golf course. Yeah, I mean, there must be a confidence element as well. I'm I'm sure when you've got some good decisions yeah. under your belt, you feel like you've got the instincts. When it's your first time, and there's all this money, and all these people are affected by it. Absolutely. I mean, you doubt yourself every day and you still do. And I think if you stop doubting yourself, by the way, you have a, another problem on your hands. Hopefully you've also got a team around you that trusts you well enough to criticize you and, and trust that you'll take that. But I think when you come into a new job in a new organization, a new team, those things don't yet exist naturally. And so the quicker you can build that rapport, that trust, the interpersonal relationships, the better. And sometimes working through a crisis together helps. Sometimes making tough decisions together and a team seeing that they can rely on you to protect them or at least give them a fighting chance and, and let them do their job appropriately. Sometimes that can help build that trust and rapport. Yeah, in, in fact, because it's it's a thing that you shared and connected you to them, those difficult moments. It's something you went through together. And once you have an experience like that, loads of Hollywood films talk about that very process where people go through a difficult moment and then they're friends for for life. Uh, it's really, really fascinating to talk about. Uh, we could talk all day about this, but there's also another thing that I really wanted to touch on, which is your experience in these very disruptive companies. And I'm, you've worked in N26, which is disrupt, disrupting banking and Uber, disrupting taxi services and so on. And I'm wondering what's the, the biggest hurdle you've faced in your roles when you've been in those disruptive environments? So I've come into these disruptors in their layer stages. Yeah. And I think one of the hurdles that they face is how do you migrate from a disruptor role to a category leadership role, which is usually that point where I come in where the business is suddenly large and, and we're leading, but where is the future growth going to come from? Country expansion, product expansion, much more efficient marketing, the resurrection of churn users penetrating market beyond the immediate interested audience into current rejectors. Those things require other tactics. And I think every one of the disruptors has struggled with that in one way or another. And reputation is an important part of that to a degree. And so some of these disruptors, you know, we, we used to kind of celebrate that go fast, break shit mentality, certainly in some of the businesses I've been in. I think that's great in the early stages. And I think that there are markets where the customer will see you do that and they see you fighting for them. And sometimes I compare, I talk about the Uber story in a way that is almost this Robin Hood persona, right? You're, you're coming in, you're, you're breaking the taxi monopoly, you're fighting for the customer, you're liberating that market and you're adding value back to the customer. You're getting much cheaper rides. And if you get it right, drivers are getting much more fees because they have more rides on a day even though the fee ride is lower. That Robin Hood persona is very close to a criminal persona, right? And so Robin Hood is a crook, but he's your crook. He's serving you yeah. his money back to the people. When a company starts acting badly or is perceived to not be a good player within society, suddenly that tips very quickly into, oh, you're just, you're, you're, you're not my bad guy. You're just a bad guy. And, and certainly that's what happened to Uber after some of the, you know, during the delete Uber moment and some of the crises. Uber is a fantastic case of a business that hunkered down at that point and really started to not just work on its reputation, but work on its business from the inside out. When Dara joined the business, set forward completely new leadership principles and said, we have to do the right thing, full stop. We cannot break the rules. We have to do the right thing. And that may mean in times that we skirt the rules or we work with a regulator to change regulation that we feel 
is not right for the future. It may also mean that there are markets that we don't want to operate in because we feel that the rules are, are, are just simply not, not valid and therefore we can't liberate a market like that. But that's a really hard decision to take as a business and sometimes require a complete pivot for how you operate as a business. But as you mature, you also take on more responsibility. You know, I started out by saying we serve millions and millions of customers today, sending money you know, home to family. We work in a highly regulated environment at Zeps today. We are a money transfer business, so we work with regulators on the pay-ins side where people are sending money. We work with central banks in developing countries uh, on the FX side of things and getting money to those countries. We work with them to try to make our lives better for customers. How do we get that money there faster and cheaper? But we also need to maintain good relationships because when those relationships break, the people that will suffer will be our customers. And yeah, responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen because they need to get that money to that hospital or to pay the rent or whatever it is. We'll come to regulation in a second. A very connected point that I just want to dial back a little bit. Just think about trust because you had to deal with Uber going through that very negative PR at that moment, delete the Uber app. And then you came into a bank, which is all about trust, really. People putting their money in your, in your app. What lessons do you feel you learned going through Uber that maybe translated into how you built trust with consumers when you were at N26? It's a great question. So I think one of the, and this is core to marketing, we could talk about relationship with regulators and the fact yeah. that you, you need to, you need to, you, you can't just ignore them. They are there to regulate. And you may not like it, but sooner or later, they're going to come down on you like a bag of bricks if you don't mm -hmm. adhere to the regulation. And there's a degree of, you need to adhere to the regulation even if you don't like it, if you want to change it. You almost need to be part of it and change it from the inside. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a bigger macro lesson. As a marketer, to build trust, I think proof is, is vitally important. So what we did at Uber, which I then took as a learning in 1026 and, and, and even now into, into World Remit, is that the type of brand marketing that you sometimes see businesses do, which is this something like putting lipstick on a pig. Oh, we're in this fantastic business. Buy us now. And then a customer buys it and it's the look like that to taste like that. So we're the best tasting vitamin drink or, or just yeah. sugary. That's not me as a person. And I think that comes from the lessons that I've learned where trust is really hard to gain and it actually flees very quickly. Yeah. It kind of comes on foot and leaves on horse. But if you're reaching people emotionally through brand marketing, if you have that translated through to your performance and growth marketing engine so that you are actually piercing the skin and converting them. But in doing so, you are putting forward promises that you know your business product app service can deliver on instantly, you have a very controlled, close, positive psychological reinforcement. So at Uber, we decided that one of the things that we need to work on for our customers is really educate them about the safety features of the product. So we started to run campaigns around you know, Uber is a safe product to use, but in doing them, we were quirky and fun and emotional at times. You know, every ad was about a specific feature, even if it didn't say, oh, here's a feature. It showed things that once you know, immediately when people opened the product, they could see that thing there and they go, oh, they didn't mm -hmm. like it. At N26, we ran brand campaigns, certainly in the, in the German, the DOF region, which hopefully really pierced the skin emotionally and put forward a point of view that people didn't expect from a brand around diversity and inclusivity 
and really being a different player in this category, serving customers. Every one of those ads talked about, you can open an account in three minutes and lo and behold, you can actually do that. You can split the bill, you can save together. There's this feature and, and every one of those things, when you open the actual app and product is right there for you. And so that proof point led almost product marketing led brand marketing is something that I, I still feel very strongly is a way to people's trust engine. Yeah. I've heard one marketer saying that a product is just another form of marketing to get people to, to buy again, to reinvest in, which the product people might not like. But no, but, but it has a well, product or marketing. And I think that for tech is, is different and being a marketer in tech is different. If you are, or some of my FSCG peers, some of the business of marketing is the end all and be all. It's the core of the business. It, you know, they yeah. own the customer, they own the data, they, they provide the insights to everybody else and everybody else that serves marketing. Then tech is very, very different. And as a tech marketer, you are working together with product on a daily basis. And together you build the perception of the customer, you build the brand. It, these things are not in isolation. And it's a very deep partnership on how best to service a customer in a very rapidly changing world. Yeah. And it's one which, let's take fintech as a great example. The fintechs that came and disrupted were so much better than the traditional banks that they were able to get lots of customers very quickly. The traditional banks are beginning to catch up. Yep. And I'm wondering, where do you see the future for the, fintech, for the N26s, the Revoluts? What do they have to do to maintain their edge when the traditional banks have as good an app as them and all the features that they need and it's easy and it's clean and, and everything. This goes back to the old, the disruptor being disrupted story. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it's how, I mean, over N26 Wildermit, it is a consistent story of disruptors that are scaling, scaling, scaling. And what happens is the traditional industry that they've disrupted, it's, you know, over years catches up. They're not stupid. They won't get to that place, but they get better and better and better. So the moat Get closer unless you're perpetually innovating, which is a big, big question. At the same time, new players jump into that, especially in a well-funded, you know, PVC environment where they're willing to put bets on every small player entering the category. Within years, you find yourself with hundreds of competitors, incumbents that are better, and what differentiated you at day one is, well, table stakes in year five. I think you have to realize that very early on. I think you have to invest in product velocity very early on. And I think the, the large scale disruptors that have become trustworthy, responsible category leaders will continue to grow if they, if they show that accelerated product velocity. I don't think that that's something that many of the companies can do today. If you look within FinTech, for example, I think, you know, unfortunately, but, but I have to give them credit. Revolut is an incredible example of this. And Revolut ships product on a pace that is just simply enviable. And in doing so, their product to their customers is perpetually fresh. It feels like they're still innovating for that customer. There's no reason for the customer to leave. And in doing so, every new feature, every new product that they launch is a new reason for somebody to, to leave an incumbent or not go to a competitor. Mm -hmm. So I think that product velocity is incredibly important. I think you'll find the same thing at Uber, that product velocity within the core product, but then also expanding into different categories. Now, Uber One is a service that sits on top of that. Particularly within fintech, where you're finding rapidly or previously commoditized category that are at risk, always is slipping back into commoditization, even for a disruptor that's brought in something new. That product velocity for differentiation is absolutely key. Yeah, so you can never take your foot off the 
accelerator, basically. You cannot. And at the same time, tech is hard. And so what happens after five years, your tech is in legacy and you start to need to start to rebuild your product. And so CTOs in these organizations have a big job and it's uh, it's tough. Absolutely. Again, there's so many things we could go into here, but looking back on your, I I love the, the, the wartime CMO battles that you've gone through. If you were to now sit down and turn this into a business book about your experiences, what title do you think you'd give it? What do you think you'd call it? I think there would be something around, can it move fast and move fast and move on? Because I think that sends a, in a wartime situation, I think you have to just start and act very decisively. I think you have to be, you cannot be afraid to cut up existing strategies. You cannot be afraid to undo what's been done before, because if you're in that wartime situation through external factors or internal factors, the one thing you can probably guarantee yourself is that what worked before will not work after. And so undoing some of what's been done is okay. However, it's inexcusable if you wouldn't learn from, from the changes that you implement very, very quickly. I think the other thing is that change will come fast and it'll come hard and it'll feel very drastic to the team that's largely built the things that were there before. And so you have to be able to manage that with empathy. I think being a wartime CMO is actually not about being tough. I think it's about being kind and empathetic and helping your team work through that and understand the change and get engaged with the change. And then I do think you have to be rigorous. I think there will be people that will not like the change. And I think parting ways with those people as quickly as possible, unfortunately, with empathy in a very humane way is the best thing you can do for your remaining team who you want to invest in, who want to be there. Luckily, many of the people in these teams and businesses are shareholders. And so as a shareholder, they hopefully can see that they'll continue to stay connected to the next growth curve of the business, but they might yeah. not be inside that business for the next growth curve. And then rebuild. You, you have to get through that pace. It'll feel like a whirlwind. It'll feel super tough, but it doesn't end. Well, when the change is done, when the big decisions are made, that's the moment you actually start leading. That's the moment you start rebuilding. That's when you know, you're still at war, your competition's fierce, something's happening in the world. You need to rebuild. You need to put in place the infrastructure for the next phase of growth. And yeah, I think you need to keenly mm-hmm. understand what it'll take to drive there. So it's a long winded answer because I actually don't have a title. Move fast and move on. I like that. Good. Let's publish it. <laughs> um, now, just a few rapid fire questions before we wrap, uh, wrap up. Just some ideas, little things you stand by, things you like. What's one book do you think that every leader should read? Well, I'm reading one right now. Where did I put it? I've just recently, there's just a book that's been recently published, which is a new book that summarizes a lot of the academia on how people change their mind and why people change their mind, but really goes into the physiology of it. It's an easy read. It's not very dense, but it's, it's incredibly informative on how people that are actually incredibly entrenched, so people like cults, conspiracy theorists, and they've gone into those areas to see how people actually change their mind and what the physiology of that. So I, th- I think that's quite interesting as a marketer to, 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 to have read through. What's the name? Sorry. Uh, it's actually called why our minds or how our minds change. How our minds change. And are you, do you like podcasts? I, I do, do occasionally, especially on flights. Yeah. Uh, do you have any that you feel make a big impact on your leadership style? Not on my leadership style, but there's a podcast that is run by the ex secretary general of the CIA and it is absolutely fascinating. It's a weekly podcast and he goes into extreme depth on the 
foreign policy, international developments, and it is absolutely open. It is incredibly transparent and, and fascinating to listen to. Okay. How do you mentally reset after a challenging day at work? I garden. It's the most embarrassing answer. But I run in the mornings and, and if I have a coffee break and I am at home, what I'll do is I'll, like, I'll mow my lawn for the 30th time or something. It's not a large lawn. I snip the flowers, but there's something about working with your hands that gets me to really connect. On a rainy day, I'm, I'm the cook at home. So I, I, I cook the meal and I make sure my family's built. But the actual working with my hands and cooking the meal gets me to really disconnect. And then after that, uh, we'll jump back into my email and keep working. Yeah. Uh, what's the first thing you do each morning to set yourself up for success? I don't know if I set myself up for success, but while I'm making breakfast for the family, I do listen to Bloomberg TV and it gives me kind of a pretty dense download from a financial perspective on the world, but specifically now we're in foreign exchange, foreign markets. So it gives me a good sense of what, what happened overnight. Okay. How do you ensure you're receiving honest feedback from your team? I hope I am. I ask for it very, very frequently and I ask for it in different situations. I think that the more, more important one was not always a formal setting. It's also an informal setting. They come to me with some tough stuff. So I, 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 I trust them that it's, it's pretty, pretty transparent, but asking for it, I think is a good first step. What's one piece of software you can't live without? Well, in this case, Tableau, but anything that's dashboarding our data, I mean, I spend hours, literally more than two and a half hours a day, just in dashboards and data, data models. And linked to that then. What's your best tip for managing a packed schedule? I don't have one. It's always packed. Okay. An excellent gatekeeper. It's the simplest of things, but I do have, you know, an hour in the, uh, in the morning and an hour around midday that I block on my calendar. And it's not, and usually they do still get crowded out, but I think having that there to, to just work through email has worked well. The other thing that's coincidentally happening now is because I live in the Netherlands and a lot of our work happens in UK time zone. I do get an hour in the morning, and, and this is pure coincidence when I'm here, where not everybody else is at work yet. That allows me to almost clear through an entire day of emails in an hour's time, and then I can really spend my attention in conversation after that. Cool. Top tip, move to the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last one. We spoke about network. So what's your number one networking tip for leaders? I think just, just reach out. Don't be afraid to, I always feel very self-conscious if I go to a conference by myself, you're kind of standing at one of those tables with your coffee cup and yeah. lo and behold, you kind of say, you get over yourself, you say, oh, I'm this person, I'm that person and you connect and you always walk away with somebody that's got something interesting to share. And for me, networking is actually more interesting outside of my own industry, like marketers are marketers and you will find each other, but I really enjoy speaking to experts in other fields. But yeah, go, go, go make time for a conference occasionally. Go listen to what other people have to say, switch off. And usually I always come away with pages and pages of things I need to do after that. And none of them were spoken about at the conference, but somehow the sitting in an audience, listening to other people speak, your mind goes into a different setting and just sort of works through the things that are happening around you in a different way. Awesome. Patrick, where can people find out more about you? They can reach out. Call me, WhatsApp me, but I start on LinkedIn. Okay, awesome. Patrick, it's been a great, insightful conversation. I've loved every minute. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. Before you head off, I've got a small request to make. 
If you know another tech leader who would appreciate some of the ideas from this episode, please just click share and send it over to them. Also be sure to hit subscribe and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Until next time, I've been your host, Rob D. Willis. Thank you and goodbye.